with this great conversation. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. I came across this quote this weekend from Frederick Douglass, and it really hit home. It really resonated with me. And the quote is this, The right is of no sex. Truth is of no color. God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. That really resonated with me, and it resonated with me because I think it speaks to what I'm longing for, what is missing in this kind of chaotic world. You know, when I started this show almost nine years ago, it's a show about leadership. It will continue to remain a show about leadership, but it's morphing. I'm drawn to something larger than how to build more effective teams, how to improve employee engagement, how to deal with a dysfunctional boss, because I... Those are all important. Those will always be with us. And I will certainly help anybody or anyone in those arenas. But for the longest time, there's been this gnawing or this kind of, I feel like I'm on an island, to be quite honest. And I know there are tens of millions of other people out there who feel like they're on an island where they're dissidents in this democracy, in this world of, of doublespeak, if you will, that we really can't say what the truth is, and you know what I'm talking about, the world has gone mad. And the way to be, as I say on this show, the composed force in a chaotic situation, in a chaotic world, you do have to be composed, confident, consistent, courageous, and compassionate, and certainly courageous. And I think that's what we're seeing in this role is this lack of courage. We're seeing a tremendous amount of cowardice. And I'm tired of the cowardice, to be quite honest. And if this show is morphing into anything, it's to confront that cowardice head on. And we all have an obligation here to not be cowards in this chaotic, mad situation that we seem to be in. It's ironic, isn't it? That it really is in the history of the modern world, all of human existence. This is the best time to be alive on the planet. This is the most opportunity, longevity of life, miraculous science and progress and medicine. But we seem to be heading towards an abyss. And that's why I'm excited to have on my show and was wanting to have on my show Brett Weinstein and his wife Heather Hang. And they've got a book out there called A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. Science and evolutionary biology haven't changed very much, obviously, but we humans have. We can't keep up with every, the external factors that are around us because of our science and evolutionary biology, and that's what the book really highlights, and it was really fascinating to read it. And I found like I, well, after I read it, I felt a little more comforted, even though the last chapter says, you know, we're heading towards a collapse. But it's preventable because we're humans, and if we understand the kind of the evolutionary side of things, which this book did, I found like I uh, found a kindred soul. I didn't feel as alone anymore because 
even though politically I would, and I don't know all of Heather and Brett's political stance, but if you had to put a political identity on them, they're progress- progressive liberals. And I wouldn't consider myself a conservative, probably more of a classical liberal, but I'm kind of tired of those labels because we've lost the ability in this society, in this world, to have intelligent discussions from all shades of opinion. And that's why it was so fun and refreshing to have Brett and Heather on there. And they do feel like kindred spirit. And you'll see when you listen to this conversation, because despite our differences that we may have on policy directives or even social and financial economical beliefs, we still are human beings on a planet and we both cherish liberty, equality, freedom, dignity. And most importantly, the duty to speak the truth, particularly in an age of lies. We need to become more courageous and stand up and unqualifyingly reject lies. Do not speak untruths. And that's where this show is morphing into. So I will continue to bring people like Brett and Heather on the show to have these discussions because I think that's what's required to be the composed force in a chaotic situation. That's what the book, A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, is all about. They make the case, Brett and Heather make the case, that the key to escaping this chaos is right in front of us if we just choose to listen and we choose to be courageous. So you're really going to enjoy this conversation, and I am so thrilled they came on the show. This is one of my favorite conversations, and I hope I can continue to have more of these type of conversations on this show so we can become the composed force in this chaotic world. I'm so glad you're a listener. I'm so glad you've been with me, particularly for those longtime listeners. This is where the show is going, and I hope you come along for the ride. I'm proud to say that the show is sponsored by my sponsor, Ozombroso Tequila. It's a trusted, family-owned, and operated company. They've been creating tequila for many years, and they've perfected a unique time-honored craft to produce what I consider and what many consider the best tequila in the world. Ozombroso is crazy good. It's easy to sip, and the holiday seasons are approaching us. They're perfect for gifts. When I first tasted this tequila, and look, I am not a liquor drinker. I am not. I drank a lot in my Marine Corps days, in early days, and we all have those bad tequila sunrise moments, right? But this stuff is out of the world. It blows my mind, especially the Gran Reserva Ulta Añejo. Oh my God, this is insanely smooth with hints of caramel and butterscotch. Even my friends go nuts when I pour them a shot. Last night, when my daughter was over, my oldest daughter was over, we were sipping exactly on this, and she couldn't believe how good it was. The best part of it is Ozombroso makes it easy to purchase. You can go to atequila.com. You can find a complete line of their tequilas. You can use the discount code LEGEND, and you're going to receive 10% off your first order. It's going to be shipped right to your door. Go check out Ozombroso Tequila. Really good stuff. All right, thank you for being a fan and supporter of this show. If you haven't done so, please follow us on your favorite podcast application and make sure you write a review. It does wonders. If you can just take a couple minutes every time and write a review, hopefully it's five stars if you're finding value of this, it would mean the world to me. All right, so let's get on with this great conversation with Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein here on Doso Leadership. 
Heather and Brett on Dose of Leadership. Man, I'm so excited to have you guys on. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We're Thanks really for having us. To be here. There was a thunderstorm last night here where I live. Woke me up at three in the morning, and I hadn't finished your book yet, and I couldn't go to sleep because I was thinking about this. This I was so looking forward to this conversation. I finally finished the book from three a.m. to five thirty a.m. I couldn't sleep, but I finished your book. It's so good. And let me tell you, um, for a long time, I felt like I've been on an island, and I don't know if you've come across people when they talk like that. I feel like I'm like just having simple conversations, common sense conversations. I feel isolated. Is that is that? ring to you guys at all? I mean, yeah. I mean, you probably felt like an island, particularly after the evergreen thing, thing, but does that resonate with you when I say that? Absolutely. We describe it a little differently. We've talked about the feeling that we were picked up by a tornado on May 23rd <laughs> of 2017, and it hasn't put us down yet. And then we sort of had the sense that it picked a lot of other people up at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Another metaphor we use sometimes is having gone through the looking glass. Mm. And, you know, and I think like Brett just said, it turns out there are a lot of other people who are similarly on an island, um, having pick, been picked up by a tornado and having been landed somewhere else, having gone through the looking glass. But uh, for the most part, they're not wearing that on their shirts, right? You have, yeah. you have to find those people. Well, I, I've said this, uh, told this story a couple of times on this show when I look back at my parents, they were they were all married. They had a, a string of friends. There were, um, let's see, six couples, so there were 12 people total. They all got married around 1959, 1960, and they all played bridge together as new because that's what people did, right? You played bridge. And all of them are dead except one for now. But I look back at that time because as we grew up as kids and everybody, you know, if you couldn't get a babysitter, you'd go to the house where they were playing bridge sometimes, you know, and and but I remember looking at those friends and how they they lived life with each other, and it was a deep love. But they were Nixon Republicans, they were Kennedy Democrats, they were Jewish, they were Catholic, they were Protestant, and they gave each other a ton of shit around the bridge table. But they loved each other deeply. And I, you know, I don't even have twelve friends to be quite honest that I can do that with. You know what I mean? And so I don't know a lot of what you write about in your book, A Hundred Gathers Guide to the Twenty First Century. That loss. To me, I, I kept thinking back to the to my parents and their friends in there, and and like the loss that you kind of talk about, or at least something um, as this path we're going down. That that we're away from that, and we're careening down something else. Does that make any sense? What I said? Yeah, um, I think there has been a spectacular change in the way people relate to each other, and of course, the moment you point to. I hate to say it this way, but it wasn't really anywhere in particular either, right? We right. were on some sort of a long descent from a period uh, in prior times when people did have extremely deep relationships with each other. And, you know, the uh, the the bridge friends would have looked alienated from each other to a hunter-gatherer who lived in a band of people that were so utterly interdependent mm -hmm. that they were somewhere between individuals and uh, and an organism. And so, you know, the fact that we have gone further down this path, and I think, you know, for Heather and me, we look out at, you know, the generation of students that we taught, for example, mm -hmm. and see that they are even more isolated, right? Heather and I have each other, so we have a reality check built in at right. home, and a lot of people who are a little bit younger than us seem to be playing with the idea that that's kind of optional. Um, and it's, 
it's hard to articulate to them what they are passing up. And maybe your point suggests that we need, you know, we need to bootstrap a uh, a change of direction back towards this recognition of our utter interdependence that would um, would lead us to behave in a much healthier and and uh, more satisfying way. Yeah, yeah I think. He, go ahead. Go on. Just you circled back to exactly the word that I was going to highlight is the interdependence. Yeah. Uh, that uh, you know you relate from you said your parents got married in fifty nine sixty, so ours you know were just you know a few years later than that. Uh, my parents also played bridge with their friends in the seventies when when I was growing up, and it wasn't six couples. You know, you know maybe this is a generational change, maybe it's just an anecdote, but you know it was more like three or four, and so I you know I feel like though that reflects the move away from really deeply connected, fairly large groups, you know, 12 people, 12 mm -hmm. adults uh, with kids. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a, a, lot. a, that's a big group. And increasingly now people are willing to acknowledge that they're not connected, that they're disaffected, that they don't know how to connect. But then there's this patina of, and that's fine. And I choose that. And you know, who are you to say that having connections, having deep connections with someone else or someone's else uh, is critical to being human? And, you know, we're we're here to say, as all humans forever have said, no, actually, connection is is where it's at. Well, I think that's, you know, you speak to when I said I was on an island, you know, it speaks to the, the there's a gnawing, there's a craving that's constantly there for me. And I think it is connection. It's funny how I was reading in your book, you talked about um, campfires. <laughs> we had another business partner of mine on another podcast that we do. We talk. We were talking specifically about that. We're trying to build a community of people, and like, and I and I said, I think two weeks ago in a, in a podcast, I said I want to sit around a campfire and see your face, so I can see your soul. And then I read that pretty much the exact same thing in your book, right? And so I'm like, wow, this is amazing. But it is true. I think there's a. I, I think that what has an aha moment for me over the last six months is that that's really where that gnawing comes from, that craving of that, of that connection. Um, well, there's, a, there's a, a, a bitter pill that goes along with this recognition, though, which is for those of us who have spotted the problem and attempted to go in the other direction, uh, I think it is, we could probably describe it a lot of different ways, but I would say we suffer from having had the market as our developmental environment yeah and it causes us not to be good at collaborating in a way that if we had grown up under any sort of ancestral circumstances we would have learned to intuit what was necessary to be good companions collaborators reality checks and all of that and so you know in the attempt to get off the island or invite other people onto it or whatever you would amend the metaphor the problem is that we have to learn how to behave relative to each other or it doesn't work. Right. And, and that, yeah. go ahead. Well, just, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing up the market as of course we do many times in the book as well, you know, un unregulated market forces that are, that are shoehorned in as a replacement for human connection. It strikes me, I don't think, and I'm not, I'm not sure I've ever had this thought exactly before, but this concept, which I have found really horrifying since I first ran into it, but of retail therapy, mm -hmm. of you know this idea that people will find their way out of anxiety or sadness or disconnection um, by going and acquiring more things with their money. Right. 
is um, kind of the epitome of the problem. Well, it's, and, and 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 it just it points to the the deep disconnection. It's it's one part of it, which is that we learn to satisfy needs by just you know buying something that makes us feel momentarily better or that we think will. Yeah. Um, but there's the other aspect too, which is that you know a community of people that knows each other from birth where you know you're born into a community you watch people die you watch other people enter it you know everybody backwards and forwards you know what they're good at seeing you know what their blind spots are right you've seen them make errors and all of that is a very different phenomenon than one where you source even your social connections a la carte right and so for example the idea you know, a psychologist, right? A good psychologist plays a role that is somewhere in the neighborhood of what a great friend might have played, mm -hmm. what uh, a clergy member might have been to you. It's somebody who understands you and who you can trust to put aside their interests and to let you see through their eyes, right? Mm -hmm. It has very little to do with understanding the functioning of the mind. Really, what it is is somebody you can trust. Yeah. Who, who, you know, listens. But what does it mean for that to be a business relationship? I love that because it goes to, as I've, you know, spoke and taught leadership over the last, since, officially since 2007, I think even where I was in 2007 to where I am now, it was more about then, I think it was more internal and now I guess my point is where I've, where I've morphed into is that, that the keys to unlock all of this are rooted in authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability, which we seem to kind of suck at now. And I don't know how much of that is because of this, as you point out in the book, this um, dependency on this growth mindset myth, right? Or the 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 idea, as you said, is consumer, consumerism model. Which, as a conservative like myself, I mean, I really, when I read that, it really woke me up because, because you're right, because I think that we're in this perpetual cycle that to change it is going to require some some pain, but it, it, it kind of makes sense because the other alternative is is if we keep doing what we're doing, the only alternative is is a massive collapse, right? Yeah. Well, and the, I mean, the idea that we need to be vulnerable with one another, we need to be able to be vulnerable with one another, I think is exactly apt and exactly not tolerated by a landscape it's in not, which anonymous right. strangers or bots even um, can throw you to, you know, to the wolves, right? It, that yeah. you know, we, we're interacting online in ways that we would not interact in person. And no. if we did, those people who said some of the things that are said online would be would be roundly chastised by the community. That's what community does. And there is no mechanism by which to do that online. Well, I guess that's why I, I don't understand. And maybe you can talk from an evolutionary sense, because that's what was so fascinating about your book. There are so many things that, again, I have to, it's almost like, I don't know if anybody's told you this before, but it's like, you could almost, every single one of your chapters could almost be a separate book in itself, <laughs> you know? I mean, that was it, kind of the idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's so, gosh, there's so much there, guys. It's so good. But I mean, I it was fun. I felt like my brain got. Um, I feel like I did like um, bicep curls for my brain, if that's possible. That's the best <laughs> analogy. <laughs> that's what my brain it's felt. Lovely like thing to hear. <laughs> when I got done with it, it was. But that's what was so fun about it because I never looked at, you know, the way that I lead, the way that I interact 
the things I take for granted. I just didn't think about the evolutionary side of it. I mean, just for one, the one that really stuck out. I don't know why it did, but the smells one, right? I don't know why that stuck out. It was so fun just to read that. We're thinking, and I didn't realize that, that our, our body is wired or our brain is wired or it, to deal or notice a CO2, right, problem. You said even some of that was brain damaged, for example, could still react, right? Is, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, even even people who have no panic response, people who do not frighten because they have a mental defect, the CO2 detector is so separate and ancient that it will still trigger them to feel panicky and to get out of wherever it is. Because for, for those who haven't read the book yet, the idea is because we exhale CO2, our ancestors will have encountered scenarios inside a cave or enclosed mm -hmm. space where they they go in and the air is breathable but it becomes dangerous to them over time and so we have this instinctive panic response and you know it's very very deep and in the, in the book what we talk about is it would be even more useful for modern people to have a, a carbon monoxide detector because right. our industrial processes produce carbon monoxide and people simply go to sleep and die you know it puts them to sleep it would be very useful to have a detector for that but it's it's too new a hazard and so it isn't there yeah, and and I guess I should ask you, so, and I don't know much about biology or evolution. I, I mean, I I believe in it and I, it makes sense. Would we automatically, over time, if we continue to have combustion engines and did that, would we develop over time this automatic, much like we did the CO2 detector? I mean, well, two things would be true. One, we did develop a carbon monoxide detector and we now you know mandate that you install them in a house so in right. some sense this is the way humans now upgrade right. um if that you, is to say extended phenotype rather than onboard phenotypic change right and yeah. you know it, i meant like internal like the co like the CO2. right the answer is um under normal circumstances yes it would absolutely evolve it would take a very long time to happen but it would evolve but the problem is that if you just simply start the clock now, the people who um, it has to materially affect how many offspring people leave. So, you know, anybody who dies from uh, carbon monoxide poisoning but was already done reproducing and their children don't do any worse in the world for their absence, that has no impact. So, you, you know, yeah. it would take even longer because the signal that results in fewer offspring would be pretty darn weak. Yeah. Well, and it would take even longer, too, because of your first answer, right? That, be, you know, because humans are so extraordinary at basically moving our evolutionary processes and products off our own bodies mm -hmm. you know with, you know our software creates tools and those tools are the ways that we actually manifest our success in the world that the you know the co detectors that we have on our walls are the thing right. that are protecting us from the carbon monoxide now right. and yep. so you know there's less selective pressure for there to be an onboard endogenous change right. and, and this is why i wanted to bring this up because that really is, gets to the heart of the book that i just find fascinating right because the whole premise of this is why we're heading towards this collapse i think we all know in, instinctively intuitively we know that okay something's got to change i mean something is drastically has to happen for, for things to, to to change but the premise of the book is is like and the reason why you go so deep on this evolutionary side, even talking about the smells piece, is that we are advancing so fast externally, right? And the reason why we're having so much challenge and problems and dealing with the challenges that we're faced with is that 
the hardware or what I, what I'm wired with can't keep up with the progress, right? And it's just it's it's going so fast. Am I am I saying this right? I mean, you guys yeah, are way you, smart about this than I am, but that's that's the take I got from it. Like, yeah, I mean, the way I'm have evolved, it can't keep up with the progress that's happening at such an exponential rate. Well, it, uh, it it's in one way even worse, right? Because you say something needs to happen that will cause us to recognize where we're headed. Yeah. It keeps happening. We keep seeing it. It happens right in front of our eyes. And the problem is we are now so far out of our depth. We are so far out of the environment that we intuit that we don't even realize, you know, nature has ways of telling you that you're on a fatal trajectory. Mm -hmm. Right. The fact that we were all born into a world with no smartphones, the smartphone got invented. We all got one without anybody mandating that we get one. And then we discover that we have a massive wave of addiction that's changing the way we relate to each other, changing the way we spend money, we interact sexually, all of this stuff. Right. We we did that to ourselves. Right. And yet there is no mechanism whereby you can say, was that a mistake? And if it was a mistake. What can we now do about it? The point is, it's now a feature of the landscape, and it you know it can't be undone. Yeah. So I mean, we argue, as as you have alluded to, for um, the, you know the idea that we have created we have created the own, our own rate of change, which is so fast, which mm -hmm. is itself now outstripping even our extraordinary ability as humans to keep up with that rate of change. And you know what what can we do about it? Recognizing it is not sufficient. Right. Imagining that we can go back to some past, which is largely illusory and imaginative, yeah. doesn't make any sense, nor should we want it. Right. Um, so you know we need a future that is unlike one we have yet imagined. But the idea that every future on offer by the newest gadget is something we should embrace—that's crazy. And yeah. we're living part of the evidence of that crazy. Well, and I think to even to ha have the conversation about it is what's frustrating to me so much. You know, we talk about, again, from a, from a pilot perspective, I think this is why I always felt like an island because it's in my DNA because of my profession of what I have to do. It, it, you know, and if you look at the safety record of aviation, for example, look at the United States. I mean, it, take 9-11 aside, that anomaly. I mean, it's ridiculous how safe it is, right? And you're, you're never safer than when you're on a commercial airliner. <laughs> And I think a lot of people attribute that safety record. I think a lot of it has to do with, with smart regulation for sure. Um, but there's a part that I think a lot of people don't see that, that I think is why it's been so well. And it really changed after the Florida Everglades accident in the 70s. I don't know if you ever heard – um, I forget the airline – yeah, but they were all basically it was a burned out light bulb in the landing gear indicator, and, and you basically had five or six people discussing that, and they crashed a perfectly good airplane into the Everglades, and that's when they really started talking about this crew resource management or cockpit resource management, which is what the standard is today. And the linchpin or the heart of that model is this: it's not your right to challenge; it's your obligation. That is a mindset mm -hmm. that has come across that is embedded in every professional aviation, right? And that's why you don't see, that is, I think, the largest reason why you don't see the crashes anymore. It's because if you're going to be a professional aviator, I'm obligated. To like, hey, sir, with all due respect, you're about to do something really stupid here, you know? And you learn how to talk to somebody else and challenge without getting worried about getting your hand slapped, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is critical. And 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 the and the, not only that of saying it, but you're taught to receive it as well. So it's it's a dual edge, and I think that gets to the heart of what's missing. Like I can't, and certainly in academia, you guys have been, you've seen this firsthand. You can't respectively disagree with anybody, right? And that's what you see everywhere, social media. I mean, anyway, sorry for that long kind of explanation, but I just kind of, I, it, it struck me when I was reading your book that that's why, why it resonated with me so deeply because that's the world that I live in. Well, I, th I think you've got it exactly right. And in fact, that um, the exact issue that you're talking about shows up in many famous crashes. It shows up in uh, the Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. crash uh, where I believe it is the co-pilot understood that they did not, uh, that they couldn't take off, that the icing problem was yeah. not, they weren't going to get enough lift. Yeah. Um, and the pilot overrode them. Mm -hmm. uh, you see it in the, uh, what is it, Tenerife? Yeah, crash Tenerife. Where the, yeah, very overbearing captain and, you know. Famous you captain, too big for his britches, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, overrides the tower. Um, so anyway, yes, the, the obligation to challenge is clear, but I, I actually want to try an idea on you about why I mean, we've used aviation as an example of something, you know, that works where regulation, not only is it highly effective, but it's also liberating, right? Mm -hmm. All of the constraint that goes into getting you onto an airplane and nobody on the airplane having a weapon and all of that, right? Liberates you to fly literally anywhere you want in the world within 24 hours. That's an amazing level of liberty. So it, mm -hmm. it makes the point that regulation is the key to liberty if done well. Right. Um, but I wonder if part of the reason that aviation is so safe actually has to do with a mental distortion. It's the positive version of something we see failing all around us, right? So let's take um, climate change, for example, mm -hmm. right? There's a huge amount of frozen methane in the Arctic that a we do not know where the threshold is of temperature that will release so much methane all of a sudden that climate leaps. It no longer gets gradually warmer. It suddenly gets warmer and is completely outside of human control. We don't know where that is, right? And the problem is we're having a dumb reaction to it. If you tried to explain to, you know, an ancestor from 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or 10,000 years ago, if you could talk to them, you could say, look, here's the problem. We're putting out all of this CO2. It's warming the temperature, and there's this huge amount of frozen methane that may be released by this, and it may make the, it may change the habitability of the planet, and billions might die, right? And they would say, well, why don't you stop putting out the CO2? Do you, do you have the technology to do that? Oh, absolutely. We just, we're addicted to cars and things like that. You know, it's like, it'd be hard to explain why we would take that, uh, why we would fail to do the right thing. On the other hand, if you look at aviation, the 70s, when you point out things started getting really safe, um, was the era of at least annual motion pictures that focused on an airline disaster that scared the <laughs> crap out of people. That's right. So because, and you know, I remember that era, right? Yeah. When a plane went down, the news was obsessed with it, oh, yeah. right? You saw the collection of body parts, you saw this. And so it gave the, you know, because we're not well calibrated to detect that we're seeing something very rare on our television as if it's happening in our living room, Yeah. right? Since we don't correct for that well, people had, you know, terror about flying, which is exactly the opposite of what they should have had. 
And that terror caused them to be motivated in terms of, can we make this safer? And the answer is actually, they really did make it a lot safer, right? Yeah. The airline, the airplanes got better. The regulation got, got good. And, um, you know, the obsession over what went wrong in each case actually resulted in, uh, extremely effective regulation. That's so let me just push back a little bit though, not on anything that you just said, I don't think, but, um, the idea that there was an, an annual or more horror film about an airline disaster um, created the incentive to really make sure that airline safety was prominent. Maybe. Okay. You know, I, I think that's at least a, an interesting factor. But then we can take a, a different issue where suddenly there was basically a fear campaign to bring awareness to say, you know, the, the kids' pictures on milk cartons <laughs> with regard to disappearances, right? right? Yep. That we then the safetyism there. So safetyism in air travel, yes, please, absolutely, right? Like no one needs us to be playing with tolerances there and we don't want it. But the idea that what we need to do is slide this all the way to 11 to make sure that no stranger abductions ever happen. And the cost is no children playing outside in the streets, no risk, no serendipity, no exploration. And we have children growing up and they get to 18 with the bodies of adults and the minds still of children. And so there are some things where you do want to say, you know what, fear might actually be a motivator to get us to get, you know, safety to be the one thing that we need to prioritize. And then there are other situations where actually that's really the wrong approach. And then I would, I might also say that, um, the, you know, the point about not just the right to challenge, but the obligation to challenge um, is necessary over in airplane space and sort of doesn't like, where does that even fit over in some of these other places where actually safetyism is a problem? Is, is a bug. Yeah, um, I feel an obligation to push back on that, but I agree with you, which puts me in an awkward spot. Um, but this this does go, we talk in the book about uh, close calls and their importance yeah, in uh, training the mind to spot actual hazards in time and to you know react in a, a coordinated and useful way rather than a chaotic way. And what you're pointing to is that, uh, you know, the largely erroneous fear about what was happening to, you know, mild-mannered children playing in front of their houses, right? <laughs> that nonsense, that panic yeah. resulted in a massive change in what children encountered. Yes. And therefore, it resulted in the close calls that they encountered being not significant enough, not real enough to train the mind usefully. And then what do you know? You get to 2017 and people are a little unclear on what violence means. And, <laughs> right. you know, they uh, fear that they are unsafe in school because of the mention of this, that, and the other thing. And the point, it, it really, you, you, you know, as you sometimes say, Heather, um, if you wrote it as a screenplay, it wouldn't be plausible, no. right? It, yeah. it happened, but if you wrote it, people would be like, like no, they'll never happen. be afraid of, you know, they'll never mistake words for violence. That <laughs> That's a bridge too far. Well, that does, it does speak to, the, you're right, and in, in the close call section was great in the book, you know, and you retelling the story, your two students, you know, 
miraculously surviving that building collapse and that earthquake. My God, you know, and, but the point of that story is, is key and it gets to what you're talking about. I mean, we all grew up, I think we're all relatively the same age. I mean, we all, you know, what, what's the, the kind of the funny memes of the Gen X thing now? Like, well, you know, when I was a kid, I rode a bike without a helmet and we built ramps out of, you know, rusty nails and plywood and we jumped and we fell and we didn't wear helmets and all that. Right. And I tell those stories to my kids and they're incredulous. And then and I think back, like, oh my God, what has happened? I have Life 360, and, you know, I know where all my kids, I know where my kids are at all the time. My parents didn't know where I was at for basically 16 hours of the day. Mm-hmm. No, it, yeah. they, they didn't. And it was and, better for you and for them. That's right. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> let, let's, let's be fair about it, okay? Um, I know some kids who didn't make it. Yeah. Right? As do you. Mm-hmm. Fair. Um, and, the, you know, the thing that is important to say is it's not like, hey, you know, Risk is good. The answer is risk is worth it. Right. 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 A childhood that has. And it's it's necessary. It's necessary, which means that a parent has to confront this very frightening fact that a child who has experienced enough risk to actually be a wise adult is a child who was not perfectly safe. Right. Right. There's no way to do it with perfect safety. And the job of a parent, well, among the jobs of a parent, is to manage the level of risk so that the kid makes it. Right. Right. Yeah. You just want, like, you want, like you said, you with want, your students and they can, just don't leave in a box, right? Don't, <laughs> our goal is not yeah. to leave in a box here. Nobody, yeah. well, we, you know, we were a little more direct than that. Nobody comes home in a box, which was code for you have the right to take risks and we expect you to, but you don't have the right to take a risk that might send you home in a box because that risk goes beyond you. That risk goes yeah. to your family. That risk goes to the other people on the trip. Yeah. And I mean, this is a little bit too stark, but you know, we, so we were we were teaching college students with a range of ages from you know nineteen to mid thirties. Um, but if we're talking about parenting, still, you know, you you as a parent can probably guarantee that your kid will reach the age of eighteen, yeah. but at what cost? Right. Right. If if you if what your goal is, if you decide that you have a single static goal, which is survival of your child to the age of eighteen. That will come at the cost of that child developing the skills, the personality, the experiences with which to navigate the world after that. And frankly, it will then, you know, not only will they be again, you know, the body of an adult with the mind of a child, but then as they so-called fledge, they're much more likely to actually do damage to themselves and others Mm -hmm. after that because they look like an adult and people will assume they are, but they aren't. How could they possibly be? That's what childhood is. It's when you're supposed to be experiencing all of these things. And... Yes, it comes. It comes with a potential cost, and that potential cost is one that, um, you know, it, it's it's probably the worst one that humans can experience, right? Losing a child, and you know, we have not, and and I assume you have not, but yeah. um, but but how much greater a societal cost to have an entire generation of people who are alive but incapable? Well, I think again, it speaks to you know, COVID highlighted it all. I mean, I think if you look at the average, I don't know, a guy that's out there every day, he's, you know, welding things, he's running band saws, he's sawing things, he's hammering things, he's almost cutting his finger off. He's he's probably not that worried about COVID. And I'm not saying it from a political standpoint, I'm saying it from a risk assessment. He knows he every day, every time he turns on a bandsaw, He's doing a, a, his mind is the muscle of, of a risk assessment is there. And the vast majority of us are staring, staring at 
blue screens and the biggest risk that we have is carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, I don't know. I mean, does, am, am I going to be, if that's me and if that's my world, am I, you know, no, I don't think anybody's doing the work when they look at like the news and the, and, and everything that comes down and just COVID is one example of like, they're okay. Well, what level of risk are we talking about here? Are we talking about, you know, is it the same risk level as flying an airplane, of, of driving a car, of of deep sea fishing? What I mean, right? Yeah. None of that's getting talked about, and, and yeah. it drives me crazy. And, and is it the same risk for everyone, regardless of the other factors in your life, like right. whether or not you have comorbidities or you know, or are old? Yeah. yeah. So, so the idea of a single static risk that extends equally to all humans, and it is the only one that we need to be paying attention to, is is not is is not humane, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the guy with the bandsaw, unfortunately, is getting COVID wrong too frequently, right? Because the guy with the bands, the fact is, we now know an awful lot about what puts you at risk. Right. And the fact is, if the guy with the bandsaw is forty and athletic and uh, uh, either lives in a climate where he gets a lot of sunlight or mm -hmm. um, supplements with vitamin D in an aggressive way, then he may actually be correct in feeling like, I don't think this is uh, too dangerous a virus to me. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if he's 40 pounds overweight, right, or and or living you know at a high latitude and not thinking about his vitamin D levels, he may be at serious risk even more risk if his doctor or has to commute to his job on public transit or something right right, right, right. Yeah. Both, yeah. even worse if his doctor is in a social environment where the doctor can't afford to think for himself and so the doctor adheres to this ridiculous program of uh encountering people who are sick and sending them home to get the people they live with sick and not treating them until it's an emergency, right? So there are all kinds of things about COVID that are hard to intuit, which has resulted, frankly, in us choosing without any rational defense to vaccinate children who are, in fact, unless they have serious comorbidities, almost totally safe from this disease in order, in theory, to protect older, infirm people. Right. So right. somehow we have collectively botched this job and we have given people a one size fits all diagnosis and prognosis and solution. And, you know, how many months later now? And we're still pretending that this all somehow makes sense. Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, but I got to talk to you about my brand new sponsor, Awesome Broso Tequila. I got to tell you, this stuff is crazy good. It's easy to sip. It's perfect for gifts. I got the holidays coming up. And when I first tasted this tequila, it absolutely blew my mind. We all have bad memories of tequila, but this stuff is out of this world. I love this company. It's a trusted, family-owned and operated company. They've been creating tequila for many years, but they've perfected this unique, time-honored craft, producing what I consider and is considered the best tequila in the world. From their La Rosa Reposado, aged in Bordeaux wine barrels, which creates this really cool pink hue, to their Gran Reserva Ulta Añejo, my favorite, which is aged in new French oak casks. Each tequila is as unique as it is flavorful. Asombroso Tequila is honored to have received many awards throughout the years, notably the prestigious Rob Report's Best of the Best and Top Tequila in the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. Although they have acquired many accolades throughout the years, their customers are what matter the most. Their continuous support and reorders are what motivates the driving force to keep producing the world's best tasting tequila year after year. You can't go wrong with this stuff. 
You can find out the complete line of Asombroso tequilas on their purchasing site, atequila.com. That's the letter, atequila.com. Use the discount code LEGEND, and you'll receive 10% off your first order. Go check them out. Asombroso tequila. Really good stuff. Yeah, why, why do you think, in a bigger picture, that the conversations don't happen? I mean, why does it get so polarized. I think instinctively I know why they get polarized, but why doesn't the average 45-year-old, and maybe they do and I just don't see them, but why doesn't the average 45-year-old sit there and turn on the radio, the TV, and pick any channel? I don't care, right or left, doesn't matter. But why can't, why does it seem like that nobody's seeing through the bullshit? Why does it seem like so many people take the bullshit and like it's, like it's no big, like, oh yeah, I mean, is it, from an evolutionary standpoint, is it because are we stupid? Do we like to? Is it is it like a hunter gatherer thing? Like, kind of leads to fundamentalism in, in the sense that I mean that fundamentalism likes tribes. Uh, I don't know. What What do you think? It's not. It's not that. Let, let's give yeah. them their due. And we're not. We're not. We're not a stupid species. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. No, right. We're not. We're we're not. We do all right. And we the, clean and up the vast okay. majority of us. I mean, the, just I know you want to answer this, and I want to say something too. But I will say that. Um, Teaching at Evergreen for 15 years mm-hmm. with a really wide, like actual diversity of students, like yeah. across all the demographic markers, um, including age and, you know, first in their family to go to college and, you know, all as veterans and grandmothers and all of this. Um, it made me much less of a misanthrope. Yeah. I think I went into that job thinking, ah, people are probably just stupid. They can't figure it out, yeah. whatever. No, almost everyone, almost everyone is capable of deep insight and, and care. Yeah, especially if you get to them early. Which and I want to, yeah. and I believe that, and I, because and I, right, I see it in my kids. I see it. I mean, I believe that in human beings. I always want to focus on the strengths, not the weaknesses. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. Okay, okay, but let's uh, let's address your your question um, because I think you don't see the reason that people are wired to behave in this way until you look at it evolutionarily and you yeah. realize, uh, first of all, human beings are not built to be right right? Being right is a means to an end. Okay. And when being wrong leads better to that end, human beings embrace wrong, right? So for example, um, if you take all of the, uh, what we would call metaphorical beliefs, if you take all of the religious beliefs mm-hmm. that we can prove in a laboratory aren't true, right? Would the ancestor 5,000 years ago have been better off abandoning the mysticism and embracing the idea of, hey, let's, you know, let's make laboratories and figure out what's really going on. No, they'd be much better off embracing the mysticism of their their group and taking it in deeply and operationalizing it. And so what I'm getting at is this. Human beings, just as we have a CO2 detector mm-hmm. that keeps us from suffocating in an enclosed space. CO2. Yeah. Yeah. We have a CO2 detector. Mm-hmm. We also have a uh, early starvation warning detector. And when people start making noises like, oh, you just don't get it. You're not one of us. In fact, you're a hazard to us, right? That is a direct threat to future ability to feed self, right? Because humans cannot feed themselves in any environment. No individual human can feed themselves in any environment on earth alone indefinitely. 
right? You may think, oh, well, I'll fish my way out of it. Well, you're going to need fish hooks, and I bet you don't know enough metallurgy to make them. So, <laughs> right? Um, so anyway, the point is human beings are inherently collective. And that means that when the other members of your collective start looking at you funny, like yeah. you're the problem, you begin to fear that you're about to starve because they're going to drive you to the edge of the village and, you know, wish you good luck as you, you know, head off into the unknown. So... What that means is all of this online nonsense is people triggering that in each other, yeah. right? If you express skepticism about certain things, then the point is, oh, you're the witch, right? And so it is that. And, you know, I, I don't mean to make light of it here. What I'm saying is as much as I'm sure all three of us definitely want people to stand up and say what needs to be said. It is not surprising that they do so infrequently yeah. because the threat, even if in modern circumstances, is not really a threat to your ability to feed yourself. It feels like feels one like for it. very good historical reasons. And the main mechanism, it seems, the main emotion that the tribalism is being uh, enforced with is fear. Yeah, and, you, know, you, you said that in, in what you just said, Brett, but, you know, fear is driving people and whether or not they recognize it. And, you know, I was just I was just thinking the other day, you know, I would so much rather be angry than afraid. And I don't want either. Right. But there there are situations that people could respond wow. to with anger or fear. And um, anger feels like a response that is more temporary, that it can end, it yeah. can be finite. You can say, wow, that was, you know, hopefully I didn't lose my temp, like hopefully I didn't do anything that I now need to go go fix, but it's over. Whereas fear has this lingering presence that just grabs you and it's very hard to escape from. Yes, and um, I guess the final, maybe it's not the final, but a next piece of the puzzle is you have you, you say people don't spot the bullshit they do almost overwhelmingly but they respond to it incoherently mm. right mm. in other words they because we are we are built to grow up in an environment and then to intuit that environment so that we don't have to carefully consciously think through most things in order to to function well right mm -hmm. to we are, we are built to flow through life and to reserve consciousness for those rare circumstances where something is really surprising to us. Um, but for us, we don't intuit well because we don't live as adults in the environment we grew up in. So our intuitions are terribly tutored. And as people do detect correctly that the system is rigged against them, that it is not serving their interests most of the time, that the governance stuff is theater right? At best, mm -hmm, at best right. it's indifferent to them. Sometimes it's actually downright hostile to their interests. They move to an intuitive layer about what must be true and they embrace uh, nonsense, ideas that mm -hmm. don't add up. They're very susceptible to to con artists and stuff like this. And so the, the real problem is they do detect the bullshit. They don't have the first clue what to do next in general, right? And that's that's what we need to to um, begin to discuss more widely. Yeah. So oh, that was amazing. That, that, that's really great insight. And, and I, I agree. I'm about to get banished from the tribe and starve. So it kind of triggers that. That makes perfect sense. So what, how do, well, let me, before I get to that, I want to say this about fear. I want to see what you guys think about this. I, I agree with you that, and that's the first I'd ever heard that Heather. And I love that, that it's easier for me to be angered than fearful. It's a much more 
acceptable or pleasurable maybe because there sometimes there's some pleasure in anger of getting angry right i mean i don't know but i know from my teaching like one thing i've certainly i'm very passionate about and um i get this from being in the marine corps and doing this and flying and but i the fear and uncertainty never goes away right and i think a lot of times we see self-help or people talking or this myth thinking that the fear and uncertainty goes away. It's actually a blessing, right? I, I think the fear actually is a barometer of what you should do next, right? It points in the direction of, of what you should do if, if you embrace it. And that's why I kind of look at fear as, as a blessing. And, and for me, it seems like if we could get people to kind of embrace that and, and be the composed force in a chaotic situation, I think that is the key, the, the ticket. You know, if you can be the composed force in a chaotic situation, the world's your oyster. You can, you can, you know, you can pretty much, you know, live a significant life, a very significant life. And, and that's what I, yeah. I try to talk. And so if you, so the, the, I think for me, it's like getting people to understand, stop. There's no such thing as a fearless warrior. Right. Mm. There's no such well, thing. They they die quick. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And there's no such thing as. And I like to look at us all as creators, right? As creators, we always have a choice. I can choose how to, you know, you come at me. Angry, yelling, fomenting and telling me all this or that. The bottom line is I have a choice. Nobody can take that away from me. You know, the guy's name is escaping me. Oh, what is his name? The The. Holocaust survivor that wrote the book. Why is his name escaping me? Ellie Wiesel. No, he wrote a book called. Um, oh, why is it? Oh, this is driving me crazy. I'll have to look this up. But he wrote a book, and that was his whole thing. Is like that's why he he as a little as a young child he survived as a teenager survived the Holocaust. He always he looked at his tormentors, not as persecutors. He looked at them as challengers. If that makes sense. Mm. And, and, you know, you're always at a choice. doesn't mean that the choice is easy or comfortable or pleasurable, but you're always at a choice. And I think for me, if, if understanding that you're always at a choice and that fear is not something to be banished, but instead to be embraced. And if you can be the composed force in that situation, to me, that's the secret to a significant life. Anyway, what are your thoughts when you hear me say that from an... Uh, absolutely. Fear is, I think people basically get negative emotions wrong. Right. Yeah, in fact, I agree. right up to the point of our psychological authorities and medical authorities treating pain as if it were an illness of its own, right? Rather than saying, are you in pain because you're doing something wrong that you could stop doing, mm -hmm. right? Right. That's the first question. If you're feeling, if it's phantom pain and a limb you no longer have, yeah, let's treat that. But um, if you're, you know, if you're, if you've got social angst and pain because you're being a jerk to people who would otherwise care about you, then let's get you not to be a jerk rather than let's anesthetize your pain, right? right, right. So the, the idea being that these are actual signals and that there are things about the modern environment which may render them unreliable signals. But certainly until sort of yesterday, evolutionarily speaking, actual pain and also mental pain were usually reliable signals to actually you need to change something about your situation if you at all can. Right. And it's a perfect test case for does the market successfully supplant the, uh, the ancestral version, right? If you've hired a shrink to make you feel better, then they may very well make you feel better. If you go to a clergy member and you say, you know, I, I feel terrible and they know the story from the perspective of other members of your community and the fact is you were a jerk and now you're being isolated and that's why you're in pain they'll give you much higher quality advice because you haven't hired them right 
But anyway, to the point about um, fear, it is there's a truth about people who are who don't feel pain, which is that they do die early because they don't learn, they don't right. become programmed to avoid damage, right? right? So they like literally lose many decades of life. Um, the same thing can be said, presumably, for people who do not have a normal, healthy relationship with fear. Right. right. If you do not have healthy fears, then you will be foolhardy. And so fully agree the key to um, courage is not an absence of fear. It is a healthy relationship with fear, which results in a piece of advice that I think people I haven't yet figured out how to phrase it so people can hear it. But the advice is um, if you face something truly frightening you actually should not shield yourself from staring into the abyss. You should stare into the abyss long enough that you can manage your right. relationship with it. Mm -hmm. That this actually, it's, it's awful, but it does make you stronger. And in some sense, I think we're watching a whole civilization of people who are too terrified to look at where we are rather than inclined to look at where we are so that we know what to do about it. Well, I actually, I think that um, that picks up on the one the, the one way that I would sort of just reframe the conversation, which is that you know fear is necessary, fear is adaptive, but fear is also so easily weaponizable, mm. especially in our modern mm. world. That fear is being used as the tool by which to control people, and so yeah. if you if you will stare into the abyss, um, and you are likely to discover when the abyss that you've been told exists actually is. A, a, a you know a, a wily coyote paint spot on the ground <laughs> right. right yeah it's, you know it's a it's a it's a fakery so oh, even more reason to be willing to sp to stare into the abyss sometimes it's an actual abyss and you need to know it and and just then carry that knowledge with you as you go forward and sometimes it turns out that the thing that you're spending all of your time avoiding looking at and avoiding thinking at and you know turning on your friends who disagree with you because of it you look at it and you say wait that's not what I was told it was. It turns out I have no reason for fear in this. Yeah, that's a great point, and that gets it, it speaks to what you're talking about in the book that you got to get out and live in the physical world. You know, you, and the kind of the lessons that you learn with your students on these on these uh, trips that you guys would take. And it, and I don't know what um, the young woman's name who who or the two of them that survived the hotel collapse around them. Yeah, I mean, okay. what an awful thing. I mean, I just can't imagine what that going through, but. I can tell you one thing, that they're better people because of it now. They have the makings of superheroes <laughs> by virtue of their having lived through something most people will never live through. Exactly. And having the knowledge that one can actually navigate such a thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's really, you know, in many ways, it's a terrible gift, but it's a gift. That's right. It's a gift nonetheless. Absolutely right. So... <laughs> This is all fun and it's great. And I'm learning a lot. And again, I'm, I'm more biceps curls are happening in my brain right now. And so I feel good, but I don't feel good about what the, it just, it seems overwhelming. You know, how do we get to the fourth frontier? How do we get people to embrace it? I mean, I read it. Yeah. I love what you're saying. Well, you know, I, I must say I, I hear a kindred spirit over there. Um, and in, you know, I, I think I think we need to not overthink it, right? Yeah, this is a conversation between people who 
have looked at the abyss and it isn't a fake one it's real mm -hmm. and this conversation does not sound like people panicking it mm -hmm. does not sound like people you couldn't sit down and have a drink with or a conversation about something fun or you know have you know, I, I think the point is what you imagine about those who believe that we are in dire circumstances and uh, that there is great urgency with which we must act isn't actually right right if you unless you've been in that room you don't know and mm -hmm. so in some sense i hope as weird and novel and uh, strange as podcasting is it does allow people to do something you know as listeners it's not as passive as watching television right they're no, actually there's, tuning there's, in on a real conversation it's an intimacy there that you can't replicate in any other media or media right. that's out there and there That's are right. communities, you know, who discuss podcasts and d debate what they hear and all of that. And so I think hopefully what will happen is as people hear rational discussion about the fact that we have various possible futures ahead of us, some of them quite bleak, but some of them potentially remarkable, and that there is a, you know, even those of us who believe that there is something to be done are concerned we won't do it. We have hope that we might. We haven't given up, right? That I think will bring people in on the conversation, and you know, then they'll, you know, if they hear the content and the answer is, well, actually, maybe the thing to do is to look at what I'm afraid of, to stare at the abyss long enough that it doesn't panic me to think about it, right? That you know, we can bootstrap the capacity to confront it. I think in terms of inspiring people. It, which is, you, you know, your answer is sort of at the individual level, which is which yeah. is certainly where I'm more comfortable trying to figure out the solutions as well. Um, but encouraging people to stare in the abyss, uh, which can't be done by sort of school marmy instruction, just stare into it, right? But, you know, through sort of invitation to to listening in on conversations like this one, as Brett said, um, is is one side of it. But just like, you know, just like speciation involves both, you know, or, or how many species there are involves both speciation and extinction. There's another side to this, which is how to inspire people, how yeah. to, you know, how, how to encourage people to figure out what it is that they are actually passionate about. Because, you know, the, we, we have a, for sure, a crisis of, of meaning among, among people. Absolutely. And this, is, this is part of what the, you know, locking kids down so that they're guaranteed to survive to their 18th birthdays has done to people. They don't know what the possibilities are. They don't know if they are in fact creators, as you say, or discoverers or explorers or healers or communicators or leaders or, you know, any of the number of other words that I could use to describe some of the extraordinary human activities that, that we've been engaging in since we've been human. Right. And, you know, some of us don't maybe, you know, aren't healers, but some are extraordinary healers. And some people out there right now who are coming of age will never know because they haven't been allowed the opportunity to discover what it is that they um, are, are terrific at. So not just stare into the abyss, listen to the conversations among people who actually aren't, you know, boring or hateful, but, you know, really looking for <laughs> right. an amazing future. But also, you know, what is it that you could bring to the world? Maybe it's art. Maybe it's scientific discovery. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's exploration with others of new places and returning to tell the tale. You know, it could be a lot of things, but I hear very little. I mean, we used to see this in our classrooms. We used to see people 
who sort of had the lights turned on about, oh, well, there's there's a giant world out there. Yeah. And it's extraordinary that it takes, frankly, just compassionate college professors to reveal that. And I'm concerned that most people are not being exposed to even that at this point. My, my biggest fear is this lack of seeking to understand. I mean, your book, your, your, to me, your yeah. book is, is all about that. I mean, it's this seeking to understand. I wish I could... How do you turn on the curiosity switch? I don't know. I'm insatiably curious. I, you know, and I think the key to whatever solution we have, and it does begin at the individual level. To your point, I mean that sometimes, and to your point, Brett, let's don't overcomplicate things. At least, maybe you can't. Maybe you can't change the world, but you can, at least you can change your part of it, and and that can expand and grow and 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 catch fire. Hopefully, and your book is like you said, it's an evolutionary toolkit. And what I love about your book is that it. it 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 is about seeking to understand the human condition. I mean, that's what I got out of your book. And that's, I wish every conversation that I had every single day was about that. And it's not about justifying it either. I think so many times everybody tries to plant a flag. I don't know why everybody feels like they have to plant a flag and say, I'm right, you're wrong. And and I think you did a really good job in the book of explaining the human condition and not justifying it. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think it is a common misunderstanding of an evolutionary perspective that by trying to understand what we are evolutionarily is in turn a justification of everything that humans do that mm -hmm. can be pointed that for which an evolutionary explanation can be revealed. And of course, this isn't true. You know, our argument is really quite the opposite. How better to change the worst parts of human nature than to understand all of what we are as as fully as possible and then move forward and work to embrace the the beautiful things that evolution has handed us and work to minimize uh, the awful things because evolution has handed us both you know mother's love and genocide uh, you know kindness to strangers and rape these are all four of those things are evolutionary mm -hmm. and two of them are lovely and two of them are not yeah 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 if I can go back to one point, though, you say, how do we turn on the curiosity? And this is going to sound pat, but I'm so convinced it's essential. The key is just don't turn it off. Right. Right. What we do to children is we take that curiosity and we shut it down and we do so with lackluster teachers who don't want to be exposed for not knowing things. And so, you know, anybody who's raised a child has heard that child ask really difficult questions, right? It happens. Some of their questions are nonsense. Some of their questions aren't. <laughs> but if your idea is, I'm going to stand at the front of the classroom and I'm going to demonstrate, you know, that I am the, the, the one with the knowledge and I'm going to pour the knowledge right. into your head. And if you ask a question I don't know the answer to, then you've done something wrong. Well, then, okay, it's not surprising that when they reach adulthood that asking good questions isn't something that they are skilled at. But we could stop doing that. I mean, we are, you know, what we are as evolved creatures is curious. Why? Because curiosity allows you to detect opportunities that you don't see. It allows you to spot hazards that will otherwise catch you off guard. So we are built that way for a reason. And all we have to do is not mess it up. And it emerges and produces a much richer life. Mm -hmm. I agree 100%. Do you guys, I guess where it gets overwhelming, I, I'll do the work individually. But I'm still, I look at these institutions. I look at academia. I look at government. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know how. Have you guys ever read that book, The Fourth Turning? Have you ever heard of the book, The Fourth Turning? Have you ever heard of that book? I haven't read it. 
know of it. Yeah, same here. You know, for those who haven't who's listening, I mean, it's basically a, I think it was written in like 97 or something like that. It's, it's not updated, but it's certainly interesting how it kind of just looks at the historical cycles of history or the cycles of history and that there's basically a hundred year, 80 to hundred year cycles and you got four 20 year, 25 year time spans. And for lack of for brevity, I mean, we're in the crisis mode, right? And if you go back 80 years, the last crisis mode was a depression, World War II. You go back 80 years, it was a civil war. You go back 80 years, it was a revolutionary war. And there's another one, 80, I don't know what happened in the 1600s, but on Western civilization, but it, it's interesting how it follows that pattern. And, and if you, read it, we're in this kind of crisis mode. And I kind of believe that. I mean, from a historical, we all kind of know we're kind of at a crisis inflection point. But do you think, I guess my question goes, is, is like what has to happen to academia? What has to happen to the government? What has, what has to happen financially? I, I guess I see a financial clap, I, collapse. I see a uh, the government, the two-party system that is it right now is just, is, is, is something's got to change drastically. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to see where your thoughts on, on all I said there. Well, uh, there's a problem, which is that there may be a lot to this fourth turning idea, but the crisis we're in isn't that, right? It may overlap with it. It may be that we're in that crisis also, but there's something I think uh, unduly comforting about the idea that this is a cyclic pattern that as bad as things are, you know. Yeah, there's will, something good on the other side of that, right? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is not where we are. And, you know, mm. I don't think our book is in any way depressing. No. But there is a message in it about the fact that we are off the end of the tape, right? We have now <laughs> done something that has taken even our extreme capacity to deal with novelty and outstripped it. And so the answer is either. We figure out how to undo that or nature's going to figure it out for us and it isn't going to be pretty. So really, in some sense, this is a call to arms. There is still the capacity to put us back on track, right? It would necessarily be dark as we pass through what evolutionists would call the adaptive valley. But we really don't have a choice. We have done something. We have taken what we are capable of. And it's like, you know, it's like hiking up Everest. Right There comes a point very late in that hike where there isn't actually enough oxygen for you to do this safely, for you to think clearly, right? At the point you've crossed into that zone, you know, you have to have a plan for getting back out of it. And we are there. Evolutionarily speaking, we are built to adapt extremely rapidly, but we are now changing our environment so quickly that even that amazing capacity to adapt is simply not up to the challenge. So we have to deliver the next generations, the future generations, a world in which that isn't true anymore, right? Mm. It doesn't have to be a bleak world. It can be a marvelous world, but it can't be one that changes so rapidly they can't keep up. And so is the concern for you one more of, uh, of resources and the planet and the environment, or is it more of the political... Uh, media, kind of all that kind of jumbled mess of politi politics, media, not being able to talk to each other, not being able to have civil conversations, uh, because they all affect each other. I mean, they're all interrelated. I mean, I, if, if, if a left and a right talks about climate change and it follows the normal tropes, we know where it's going to go, right? 
something has to change in that and leads to having the conversation. And I think I heard you somewhere, you gave a great example of like, well, let's don't focus on uh, talking about what we let, let, you come from the place of where we agree, right? Like we can, no matter what the topic is, these red button or hot button issues that we seem to agree, disagree with on left and right. I, I still don't know how we get people to have these conversations where we focus on what we agree on. I agree a hundred percent that that's what we need to do, but I just don't know how to get, how to get there. But again, I, I, I ask a lot there, but I guess my first question was, is it more about resources and environmental into you? Is that what you think the collapse is or is it more of cultural? So let me just quickly answer before you, you go on. I would say, um, you know, 20 years ago, the answer for me would have been easy. Um, it may have been wrong, but it would have been easy for me to say it's the former, it's, it's resources. Um, because, you know, say what you will about the models that are being used to generate our understanding of climate change or our lack of understanding, depending on where you stand. Um, you know, we're experiencing habitat loss. We've seen it firsthand in many, many mm -hmm. places. Um, and you know, the, the earth is finite, right? Resources are finite. And um, even if you thought that you could start mining stuff from some other place, you, we only have one earth, we only have one habitable planet. Mm -hmm. That said, that may have been the thing that ramped up the incoherence and chaos in the political and media sphere, uh, which was then completely exaggerated by, <clears throat> excuse me, by technological innovations like the smartphone, mm -hmm. like social media. And, you know, and then, you know, just the perfect storm of we have parenting styles that create children who don't know what to do and who are willing to drug them with legal drugs so that they don't know how to how to control their own moods. Right. So, you know, all of that sort of happened simultaneously. Is that coincidence? It seems not. Yeah, I, I'm going to take a slightly different tack because I think it's very easy to get bogged down in innumerable examples of hazards, many of which are resource-based, some of which are not. Um, they're all symptoms. Uh, I guess at this moment, I almost wonder, as much as I like the title of our book, I wonder if it shouldn't have been called hypernovelty because mm. the risk to humans is hypernovelty. That's what's happening. And the problem is, what will that look like in the end? You know, it could look like slaughterbots. Right. It could look like swarms of killer drones that are purchasable at a reasonable price so that one of these political entities will start availing themselves of that power in order to shape markets and politics and uh, other phenomena. It could be the class rate gun hypothesis uh, of the methane frozen in the Arctic. Right. It could be that it's, uh, you know, it could be, it could be, frankly, uh, the lowering of the price point on creating novel viruses. And as much as COVID may not be a, a an extinction level event, that's not to say that somebody with a purpose might not engineer such a thing. It could be a Carrington event that causes yeah, the stored fire. nuclear fuel uh, in all of the civilian nuclear reactors to spill into the environment and cause a refugee crisis that will have um, existential implications. And the basic point is all those things are the result of the same problem. They're the result of the fact that we, once upon a time, 
had the power to make errors that would cause our lineage to go extinct, but our lineage was not synonymous with the whole human race. Now our errors are such that we can take out the human race in one failure to recognize a hazard. And we either are going to somehow overcome our political corruption problem and engineer a solution to that where at least we can get very high quality minds focused together on the question of what do we do about the hazards we keep creating for humanity? How do we rein in that problem so that we can live well without constantly facing new existential threats? Or we won't, in which case it'll be one of them. And it doesn't really much matter which one it is. Yeah. It'll be something. Yeah. Yeah. Not pleasant to hear, but I think you're right. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> better you hear it from me than uh, as the cosmos swallows you up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you're right. Or even like the solar, like this, uh, you know, massive solar event. You know, there's all kinds of things that could happen and trigger. Well, and yet, for, I mean, for the, people, the who... massive solar, the Carrington event to, to which you just referred. You know, obviously that isn't the result of humanity. No, it's our fragile systems that are built on imagining that it can never happen. Right, that is what makes it in existential threat exactly right Right. it is i mean that's the irony of the thing is that these events have happened throughout uh human history and prehistory to no meaningful effect because we hadn't plugged nuclear reactors into electric grids that are vulnerable to solar storms (laughs) so in some sense we don't have an intuition for it which is why we apparently run a you know one in eight risk every decade of a major grid destroying event that's plugged into all sorts of things that most people have never thought about right because right? it's not like oh my god remember that winter storm when we were out of power for two weeks right this is it's, no it's this not is a that level yeah, right, right? This, this is yeah. this is civilization destroying risk yep. yeah and in fact it's a it's a really important example um if people want to check it out uh i wrote a piece for unheard yeah um on how the world might end just recently uh, on this topic yeah in the last year somewhere and the the point about this one is, in, in the case of something like um, climate change, there we all understand that there are people who have a stake in our current trajectory such that they don't want us to fix the problem because there's a perverse incentive. In the case of the Carrington event issue, there's no opposition. Every human being who wants to see human beings continue to live on this planet ought to be on the same side of the issue and the solution isn't even expensive it's so cheap that we could solve it and it wouldn't nobody would notice it yeah no one would know yeah no one would know and yet we don't fix it and so what that says is that somehow our intuitions are um far enough off that even with something that actually has humanity destroying potential no reason for political opposition it's the lowest hanging fruit conceivable we still don't pick it yeah and it's because of uh, that's what just again makes me feel like I'm on an island sometimes. But that's why we have you in writing a hunter gatherer's guide to the 21st century, also known as hyper novelty. Hyper novelty. <laughs> <laughs> you guys did a great job there. Uh, I wish I could I could talk to you three hours. I do have another podcast coming up in 15 minutes, so I got to get near the end. What what do you, who are you hoping picks up your book? You know, um, this is going to sound like a. a like a non-answer, but our editor asked us that after we after we signed the contract, and it's been a, a book we were, had been talking about writing for over ten years. And she said, "You know, just before you begin to write, I, I'd like to get a sense from you of who your intended audience is." Um, 
and I happened to be on the phone alone with her. So my answer to her was kind of everyone. Mm-hmm. And um, the the reason I can say that without sounding like I'm completely clueless, I think, is be- precisely because <laughs> the people we were reaching in our classrooms for 15 years as professors at this, you know, weird and wacky public liberal arts college with an incredible diversity of students was kind of everyone. Yeah. So, you know, we, we offer up new evolutionary ideas in this book. And so, you know, it, it is something that we hope that is taken seriously uh, by, you know, professional scientists, but we also hope to be writing at a level that it's approachable by and accessible by just about anyone. And we think that it has value, potential value to everyone. And in fact, the, uh, the reason that we chose the, the metaphor of campfire is that it works exactly this way, right? I mean, we're talking about a literal campfire that we believe happened, you know, hundreds of thousands of times in our evolutionary past. But the idea is, it is almost inconceivable, right, that uh, in one of those ancestral campfires, that it would have been, you know, this is this is this is a hunter's only campfire, right? <laughs> this, this is for the adults, right, right? Right, right. The point is, everybody's at the campfire. And so the idea is, whatever matters to the lineage is being discussed. Everybody participates at the level that they're ready to engage it, which does, you know, it's not a, it's not a hierarchy. The fact is people have different strengths and weaknesses. The fact is, you know, the child who doesn't know enough to participate in the planning of the response to whatever it is may have the perfect mind to ask the question that nobody else thinks to ask. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's the nature of campfire is that it really is this emergent mind, right? That this is not a metaphor. Right, just yeah. because the minds aren't plugged into each other with wetware, because they're plugged into each other through the air, it seems kind of loose, but it's not. Mm-hmm. This is this is the way human minds work, mm-hmm. and so yeah. So include everyone in the conversation who's willing and interested. Come to the table with what you got. Yeah. Well, I love the table you guys are creating, and um, it's been an honor to be able to pull up, sit next to you, and, and talk with this. I, 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 I've been look. This, I'll be honest with you, this was the conversation that I've been most looking forward to. And um, it's been a tr- true honor to have you on the show. I hope we can do this again sometime. I hope we can stay in touch. I think you guys are doing um, God's work. I really do. I think you guys are doing great stuff. And um, Thank you. We'd enjoy that. Yeah, we would love to do it again. You're welcome on our island anytime. <laughs> yeah. How can people reach out to you, learn more about you? You got a great podcast. You got the book. How can people reach out to you? Yeah, we have we have Dark Horse Podcast, uh, which we live stream every Saturday. Um, Brett Weinstein's Dark Horse Podcast. That's what it, the full name. Uh, we have the book, A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which is, as of yesterday, back in stock at Amazon for the first time since mm-hmm. three days after publication. So it's it's back now. Um, and and we have websites, um, you know, heatherhying dot com, I think, and brettweinstein dot dot net. net. Yeah. I'll have links and to all that. Yep, I'll have links to all that on the show notes. And my gosh, what a what a great conversation! I know my mind, and I'm a better person for it for sitting down with you guys. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. This was great. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse. Tell your kids. Tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that those leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce. 
to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.